Hello everyone, this is Brendan from the Unsheft podcast. Each week on Unsheft, we unpack a topic regarding the politics and history of our plates in the hope of becoming better eaters. That's Unsheft, available now on your preferred podcast network. Try to run away from me, so I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a minute. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a card. Card? My duplicate card. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. (laughs) The Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Cult Worthy Classic. I'm your host, Antonio Palacios, and returning to the show... Who better than to talk about classic Kubrick than my friend Chris of the Cult Film Companion Podcast. Chris, how you doing? Doing great, thanks. Um, really excited. Um, I always loved Kubrick, and it wasn't recently until I, I got into some of the older, older stuff that he's done. And uh, man, he's always been just, he's always been gifted. That's all I can say. 100%. And he's known for being such this iconoclast of stylish filmmaking of these vast landscapes and vistas his very keen eye for detail and attention his notoriety for being such a i'm not going to say problematic but obsessive filmmaker that it has driven some cast members literally crazy but then when you go Mm -hmm. back to look at some of his earlier work where he was kind of getting the blueprints of what kind of filmmaker he wanted to be you can see that he was very raw in his early work, and I love that. I love being able to see that progression of a filmmaker going from very raw, very low budget, almost guerrilla-style filmmaking to what we know him as today, right? Oh, it's it's amazing. Um, that's the sign of a good director. If you go back, and even if some of the earlier work, like you said, is raw, it's, it's, it's unpolished, but, I mean, you can see the elements of what will become... Um, I mean, it'd be just speaking of other directors. I mean, like Spielberg, I, I, I still think Duel is one of his best movies. I agree. And, 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 and so you, that's the sign of just a, a real gifted auteur. Um, and uh, Kubrick, of all people, if you're going to if you're going to mention film um, and auteur, you know, he's got to be up there in the top five. I would say like them or even if you don't and even if you don't necessarily like the movies you can you can at least you know, I I think that you at least need to respect the craftsmanship that goes into them and something like what we're t- talking about today is I think just his second movie if I'm not mistaken I'm glad you mentioned Spielberg too because this is something that I've thought about for a very long time When some of these filmmakers who are known for trying to, I'm not going to say outdo themselves, but always try to impress more and more with each production, sometimes those productions can feel bloated and overweight, you know? I'm not going to lie. Some of Kubrick's later productions definitely suffer from that to the average everyday film watcher. Film appreciators like you and me, I feel see the importance 
of what he was trying to do as a filmmaker, and we just want more. We want to bathe in the excess of our favorite filmmakers' works, where you know Joe Schmo, who just goes into a theater on a Friday night, might not be up for a two-and-a-half-hour Kubrick production or a Spielberg production when he decides to get lengthy. But when you see these earlier works of them cutting their teeth and they are 70, 80, maybe 90-minute productions, you see what they're trying to do because they have, A, an economy of budget, an economy of screen time, an economy of storytelling. So it really is their way of getting everything they want to do into a smaller package. And I think that is why we see sometimes these more bloated productions when we appreciate what they have done with that time, with that story, and with their skills. You get what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Um, some some filmmakers have just have have commented on that, and that those certain respect those sp- certain limitations kind of breed creativity in a way that wouldn't necessarily be allowed if you had if you know if you're doing a Michael Bay movie you've got all the money in the world right these transformers movies but someone like john waters who had to just start out making movies with his friends he he's he's one that's talked about budget limitations and uh speaking of kubrick he's someone to go back to these early movies of him that are, are very relatively small stories that he's telling um, we talked about the killing, which is, you know, about a racetrack robbery. And I mean, in the scope of things, when you look at something like, especially something like uh, Pads of Glory or uh, when he's tackling war movies and Full Metal Jacket or he's satirizing uh, war movies with Dr. Strangelove, he's he's gotten he had such credibility that, you know, kind of allowed him to to you know, rewrite scenes on the fly with the, like with the shining um, and just kind of really take his time. And these early movies where, you know, he's got a, a, a small fraction of the time and a small mm-hmm. fraction of the budget to do something and make it s- still memorable and still relevant because uh, something like killer's kiss and the killing are t- just kind of timeless tales. Um, they're not really pigeonholed into a certain time period. You could easily right. re- redo these movies because, you know, the killing is, I mean, we still have heist movies to these days. And Killer's Kiss, which is it's probably his most uh, romantic movie, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I would say it's his um, most romantic movie for sure. And out of the city's jungle night comes the clawing, burning impact of a killer's kiss. It hits with the gut shock of a knockout punch. A picture as brazen as the naked bulbs of Broadway and as hard as the New York streets where it was shot. Can't you get it, Vinny? To me, you're just an old man. You smell bad. I could kill you right here and now. Oh, I don't think you will. I wouldn't be too sure of that. Don't kill me. I don't want to die. I'll do anything you say. Anything. He was lost as soon as he looked at her. And, and that, well, I, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it. He's even got his uh, first wife is in this movie. Like we just talked about with Spielberg, you mentioned something very interesting about how his career progressed. And when we speak of him as an iconoclast, and you and I have seen all of his films, what is the 
point, do you think, where when you're watching early works like this, and then you're watching Paths of Glory and then Spartacus, which was like his first big real studio production where they gave him a huge budget, there had to have been a point, there had to have been a film where this iconoclastic behavior became known and where people were willing to give up their soul almost to this filmmaker to be a part of his film, to be a part of his, his work. Because when you watch his early, earlier films like Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss and The Killing, there is a lot of, I'm going to say, Oliver Twist mentality in the sense where he wants more. Give me some more money. Give me some more freedom to make the film I want to make. Then he hits a point as a filmmaker where actors are now doing the Oliver Twist. Let me be in your movie. Let me devote two years of my life to be a part of whatever project you're doing. In the meantime, I'm going to sacrifice my mental well-being like pretty much anyone in the cast of Full Metal Jacket going through all the boot camp training, pretty much breaking themselves down so they were no longer who they were in real life. They were these characters. They would not be referred to by any other name as these characters while they're going through the trenches of this film. Which film is it that you think became the Kubrickian film where now he is the master, he is the iconoclast, and no longer at the helm of a studio production with them in charge. What do you think? Probably Spartacus. I, I think that's that was so huge because uh, people talk about Spartacus, but some people, you know, some people haven't even seen Paths of Glory and something like Dr. Strangelove. Um, I still think I think that's more of it's almost more of a Peter Sellers movie than it is a Kubrickian movie. Yeah. Um, and then I could also say that once you work with someone who at the not the caliber, but just at the at the um height of his popularity, working with Jack Nicholson mm -hmm. and doing a Stephen King movie, to me, I think cemented the last couple of movies for you, and it's very interesting because um. Upon recently rewatching Eyes Wide Shut, I, knowing everything we know about Tom Cruise now with his whole Scientology and like his ego, I like what rewatching Eyes Wide Shut and allowing himself to be the butt of the joke. Yeah. Um, throughout Wide, Eyes Wide Shut is amazing to me. So it's got to be. It's got to be something in the 70s or even The Shining. But to me, I think Spartacus really put Kubrick on the map as far as a, a, a mainstream director that studios wanted to work with. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would say that. Because like even in Lolita, it's still kind of a James Mason, Peter Sellers film. A lot of people forget mm. that Kubrick even directed that. So right. I would say my opinion is when we get to this True Kubrickian ideology. For me, it has to be 2001 because that really, he's inventing technology to bring credibility to a science fiction story that isn't about aliens and lasers. It's metaphysical. It's almost spiritual to a sense. And he really was trying to bring this realistic mentality to it where people would actually buy this is what the future is going to look like. It is not Flash Gordon. It is not these crazy-looking aliens in rubber suits. And in order to create that environment, create that credibility for a film, you have to stand behind your work 
And I think that's where the iconoclast mentality came in. That's my opinion. I feel there's a confidence in 2001 that we did not see in earlier films. And I don't know enough about the history of Spartacus. It definitely appears on screen in Spartacus. But I also feel that there was probably a lot of studio influence on Spartacus to make sure Kirk Douglas gets his hero shot, make sure that Tony Curtis gets the glamour shot. Now that you, you bring up 2001, um, you're right about the, the, the level of confidence was there. And I, I, I think that, yes, something like Spartacus once shown to like studio executives, they're going to say that, that we've got ourselves a hit. Yeah, but I could see a lot of studio executives watching 2001 saying this is not. And, and 2001 wasn't popular upon its release; it wasn't. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I can see what you're saying. The level of confidence is is, is there. And was that around the time? I, I would say that I'm not even sure if it was a movie, but when he said, "I refuse to fly," everything is going to happen in England. I think whatever year that was, that was the year that he just kind of said, "If you want, you want me to make my movies, that's fine, but they're they're going to happen um, at my whims, at yeah. my request." Yeah. So yeah, whatever year, <laughs> I would say not even a movie, but I would say the year that he said, <laughs> "You know what? I'm not flying to Hollywood to meet with you. <laughs> that's just not going to happen. You come here." Yeah. Um. So the, yeah, not even so much a movie, but yeah, but 2001 is probably a good timestamp to put on Kubrick at the at such a level of creativity, like you said, creating technology and um, creating these sets that are just to this day are still mind blowing, and then putting these putting this movie out. And then it not getting well received, it later kind of um, took on a life of its own to the point where um, it's it's considered now a sci-fi masterpiece. Which yeah, it it's a masterpiece, 100%. I don't think people recognize what they were seeing, and that was probably why it didn't have such a great response right at the start. And it's sad because I, I do hear a lot of people think that Star Wars was like the breaking moment for special effects in science fiction films and being able to get people to line up around the block for a science fiction movie, but I... I say that 2001 is the watershed moment for special effect technology of making space realistic. And like I said, the confidence behind that to make it happen, be damned of what a studio might think or be damned of what an audience might think. And again, that is something that's really great about Kubrick is he never really feels like he's making a film for an audience. He's making a film for himself. That's obsessive compulsive need for perfection he's not pleasing the studio or the actors he is not satisfied unless he says that's what i want on screen right and that and that and that is that is the the sign of um it's a sign of genius because it just that a level of confidence in yourself i think that the the, the whole star wars 2001 thing is that um star wars is much more um digestible to an audience yes <laughs> uh, it's very it's very fantastical and it's such um a heightened sense of 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 reality and you know we're going from different planets to different planets something like you know as a kid i would choose star wars over 2001 now as an adult i would choose um 2001 yeah without question um, 
Right. It it is, it it it, it kind of just kind of speaks to the kind of filmmaker that he is. I think some people are only out to make money and please audiences and that's if that's the kind of movies you you're you're comfortable making, that's fine. Um but I think someone like um David like David Lynch doesn't care what mm-hmm. what his audience thinks of his movies. No. Um he doesn't. Um, and I think that having that sort of not caring, um, it's not that you, he doesn't care. It's just that I, I think that um, Kubrick was interested in just telling stories that nobody else was telling or would be willing to tell. And everyone needs to, to um, tell their own story. And I, I keep going back to this quote from John Waters, who says that when I leave a movie theater, I want to feel miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. It's interesting. To, it's interesting to me. It's because like a, a Kubrick, Kubrick doesn't make feel good movies. This is probably, I think, the happiest ending for a Kubrick. The film we're talking about today is his second feature film and it's from 1955 it's called killer's kiss now it's a film noir and i think that there is back in the day one of the easier genres and we talked about this on the last episode with the killing to do something that's either a crime film or a film noir back then was a great way to kind of cut your teeth because you could do it on a low budget you could do it with minimal actors and there are tropes in this film that are just very familiar and satiating for people who like the film noir genre. I mean, it's about a boxer. How many boxers are there in film noir films? Plenty. You know, you really don't have a film, a femme fatale, but you definitely have someone who kind of skirts the femme fatale trope. And then you've got the man with power and the man with money. Like, there are the comfortable subject matters in this film that would make it palatable. That had to have been by choice. You know, he wrote the script. He had his uncle finance this this film for $75,000. It reminds me almost as how the Coens did Blood Simple as their first run. Sam Raimi, he chose a horror genre, but he had already cut his teeth with the Super 8 films before he actually got the money to make his Evil Dead film. This really is kind of blueprint for a filmmaker who wants to just get in and get noticed. Right. And I think this, um, it's a wise choice and it's just kind of, you know, he's not reinventing the wheel here, but he's doing, he's, he's adding a nice, uh, hubcap to it or something. Um, something like, you know, you see somebody of these early directors, well, later, later directors, their first movies, a, a lot of them, and some of the some of the, the directors I'm going to throw out here, it's kind of shocking to people to find out Francis Ford Coppola's one of his first movies, Dementia 13. That was a horror. It's a horror film, like for yeah. Corman. Um, Oliver Stone did Seizure, um, which is another not little lone horror film, and I think Kubrick knew that. Um, he trusted enough in his own talents to 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 ask his uncle because he could, he comes across as a very prideful and. In, such confidence in his filmmaking that for him to ask his uncle to finance a movie would be um he knew that it was going to be successful and he knew that he would at least be able to pay back his uncle right um so i think delving into film noir because it's not 
Uh, it's not a lavish musical. It's not a war drama. It's not, you know, we're not, we're not trancing from continent to continent here. It's, it's an, it, it's kind of simple. I mean, and then you brought up the Coen brothers with blood simple. It's, it's simple enough that you could still um, add your own touches there, but it's budgetary, budgetary, budgetary wise, which was something that Kubrick didn't have to deal with later in his career. This was something that he could do and do well. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of um, directors have picked up on that and they know that their first movie out the gate, you know, they're not going, you're not going to get the budget of, um, Lord of the Rings, you know, Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson was making splatter horror in New Zealand well before he was doing Lord of the Rings. Uh, so, I mean, those, that's, that's the sign of a confident, confident director that, you know, you got to get your foot in the door somehow. And, and how do I do that? It's, it, I'm not going to get a huge budget off, you know, doing TV and commercials. You're just not going to be handed a big budget movie. Right. So, and it's someone like Kubrick who wants to tell his own stories to write an original story. Um, I think he did. He have a co-writer on this one, Howard Sackler, but he went uncredited. But here's the thing that I'm kind of impressed by this one too. Very much like the Robert Rodriguez's of today, he gorillaed this thing 100. percent He shot it. He edited it. He directed it. He mostly wrote it. And the choices that he makes with the limitations that he had, you know, before we really even get into the film, this film is dubbed. He did not have live sound. So being confident to have a story and dialogue driven movie, knowing you're not going to have live sound, maybe not even having the actual actors who performed on screen doing their dialogue. You just have to put your balls on the table to make a film like this and have the confidence to make it work to the point where people still talk about it today like we are. Not enough of them, but they're getting discovered, you know? The Killing, 10 years ago, no one talked about The Killing. Now everyone's talking about The Killing because we talked about it on the last episode. You're seeing its influences in Tarantino films and Christopher Nolan films, heist films that have kind of gotten a rebirth from that kind of story. We can't deny the fact that there is some of the DNA of this film in Pulp Fiction as well. The, the non-linear storyline right there. Um, and then try watching Raging Bull after watching Killer's Kiss and not think that um, De Niro, uh, not De Niro, that Scorsese was not influenced with the, the, the boxing scenes that we see here in Killer's Kiss. They're very, like, you. It's, it's undeniable. And again, Kubrick is kind of, what did they say, a filmmaker's filmmaker? Yes. Or I would, or a critic's, or cinephiles filmmaker. I keep bringing it up, but I can't, and I want to know who originally said this, but if you're going to steal, you steal from the best. And Kubrick was stealing from the best, you know, taking the best elements of a noir movie and putting, uh, putting his own spin on it. And then people, directors go that go back and, you know, watch these movies. You can't help but see the influence. And, um, yeah, to me, the, the boxing in this movie is so reminiscent of Raging Bull. That's the um, first note on my list of notes is boxing, is it really? <laughs> boxing scenes undercranked like Raging Bull. Scorsese must have loved this film. Also, the first time I ever saw a POV shot of a boxer in the ring. So, yeah, that 100%, man. So let's get into what the story is because we're, we're diving into okay. all the, the, the fun of it without letting the people know what it's about. So... 
it's a film noir. It's about a boxer. His name is Davy Gordon, played by Jamie Smith. And like we've seen in many other boxing film noir storylines, especially Raging Bull, you have a boxer who's never quite made it that far and is already almost done with his boxing career before it even took off. So therefore, there is an automatic idea that this character will be susceptible to influence and manipulation because there's a desperation there. Great way to set up a main character of a film noir. Now, he also has this neighbor that lives across the way, this really pretty woman, and her name is Gloria, played by Irene Kane, who works at this dance hall, and she's got this kind of dirtbag guy who's her boss, and his name's Vincent, played by Frank Silvera. Those are pretty much your main three characters. There's not a lot of characters in this until we get in later when the, the henchmen and the hoods come into play. So you have a three-character dynamic. You have your hero, you have your female lead, and you have your antagonist. And here's a cool part about this story, which he squeezes into this really short running time, getting these characters together to interact, right? That could right. take the first 30, 40 minutes of a film. Kubrick does it in 20. Yeah, you know, we've got a, a he's basically he's coming to her defense. She's being um roughed up and um you know Davy comes to her defense and that's how the the two meet. We kind of like I said this is probably his most romantic movie because mm -hmm. it's with all the the violence doesn't really happen other than the boxing scenes. Um the violence doesn't really happen till the very end. Um but it's it's he's lighting a fuse and then when it explodes um, I absolutely love the, the, the climax to this movie, but yes, um, setting up like it is, it's a cute Brickian meet cue, you know, what other way girls getting roughed up. He comes to her rescue and they, I, I see them both as, you know, he's an aging boxer. She's, I mean, you, you see it. You can only be one of these dancers. I think she's called a taxi dancer. Yeah. They kind of like what they're called. Yeah. And go, go dancer. Um, for a gentleman's kind of like a gentleman's club kind of thing. It's not um, quite a stripper. It's not quite a prostitute. It's anything. It's more of like a temporary escort while you're in this dance hall. You know, she's there to yeah. to make you feel good, dance with you, and all that. They really don't have much of a of a place like that these days. But they all kind of fit into the same umbrella of paid company, professional company, right? right? Uh, you you age you age out of certain professions you age out of boxing you age out of being a dancer you can, your body can only take so much whether it be stripping or a ballet dancer right. i mean you've got a certain set amount of time and you need to really make your mark on on um on the world or if you don't you're going to end up like you know a never was and I, so I think to me, we see two people kind of at the same arc in their lives that kind of, you know, she's she's kind of had it with this. And his body is telling him like we, we his mind's telling him no more shots to the head, please. Right. You know, like I can't take it anymore. Crazy how you can get yourself in a mess sometimes and not even be able to think about it with any sense and yet not be able to think about anything else. You get so you're no good for anything or anybody. Maybe it begins by taking life too serious. Anyway, I think that's the way it began for me. 
just before my fight with Rodriguez three days ago. And I think that, like, he chose very interesting professions for them because, you know, if it had been a, a, a cop, you know, people, people people are cops for decades, mm -hmm. decades, or, for, you know, any sort of, uh, any number of other professions. So I, I think it was a very clever choice on his point to make it a, an athlete, like an athlete of any kind, because we hear countless stories of, so, you know, a football player, the one wrong hit, they're never playing football again, you know, or they have a concussion. And boxers, boxers have died in the ring. So, you know, interesting choice for careers i think and i i love that the fact that this is a true new york story and there's something that i've i've never lived in new york i know that you're on that side of the country you've probably been in new york more than i have but you see it in movies you read about it in novels how new york is one of the biggest cities in the world yet it also feels the loneliness of the cities of the world. And this film really touches on that. These are lonely heart people. He is a lonely man. He's chosen a lonely profession where he doesn't really have coworkers. His best friend in the world is the guy that runs the boxing gym, who's kind of like his manager as right. well. And she's a very lonely person, even though she deals in the business of being company. There's no attachment there. She is a lonely heart person. And you can honestly say that there is some empathy for the antagonist of the film, Vincent, because he, having all the power and money in his little you know, neck of the, the city, he's a lonely person as well who lusts and longs for the company, pleasure, and relation with this girl. So right. again, the fact that he uses the noir trope of having a narration done by Davy. A, you're saving money on having live sound, which you don't have. You're you're letting the story be told through narration instead of having to set up more exposition. It really is kind of a brilliant move to play this as a New York movie with these Lonely Heart people and how it brings them together. Yeah, I mean, again, going back to just like how this movie probably influenced other directors, I'm just thinking of like... Scorsese with Taxi Driver, yes. God's Lonely Man. And yeah, we've got God's Lonely Man here. He's chosen this life. Um, and then we get um, everyone, the, the three leads in this movie are all frustrated at different things. You know, Davey's frustrated that his career didn't explode. You know, he's not the, he's not the heavyweight champion. He's not any champion. Um, this poor dancer probably... I, I don't know. We don't get much about her backstory, but to me, it's it, it strikes me as some you know someone that came to New York City trying to make it big and didn't. And then Vincent, who's kind of like a probably the low man on the totem pole of some sort of organized crime family, that's probably frustrated at his position because he thinks that because he's achieved some little nodicum of power and a status and money, that you know he should be able to the the he should be able to have whatever girl that he chooses. And um, so I think it's fresh. We've got three frustrated people and Vincent's taking out his frustrations on her and uh, Davey comes to the rescue and, um, and then the whole thing kind of sets in the motion. And like you said, it's a short movie. Well, yeah, this that second act, man, that second act, like a, it, it really jumps in there in a brilliant way. And we kind of have to talk about, the visualistic flair that Kubrick is experimenting with. So Davey loses a fight. He gets knocked down repeatedly. 
And as he sleeps, he has this nightmare fever dream, which I thought was brilliant because Kubrick flips the negative as we're seeing a first-person shot of what Davy's experiencing flying through the streets of New York City and Queens, but the negative flipped. So it's a very off-putting black-and-white lighting scheme. It's very disturbing for people who have never seen that technology used before. It really lets us know that we are in someone's psyche and that it is a disturbed psyche. So when he wakes up from his dream and he hears the screams of the woman across the alleyway, she is being accosted by her boss, who is pretty much done playing Mr. Nice Guy. He wants to take what's his. And that is what gets us into Act 2. That's what brings these characters together, is Davy coming to the defense of Gloria, who's being accosted by Vincent. Yeah, and like you said, the dream sequence, um, I could only imagine you know people in the 50s seeing something like that. It, it reminds me of that story of... Um, the Great Train Robbery, yeah, one of the silent movie where the train's coming right at the screen, and people, <laughs> people thought it was going to come out. Freaked out, people freaked out. They thought the train was coming at them. I think we're we're kind of spoiled now because we know, oh, it's all you know, everything's inside the camera, it's inside the TV, it can't hurt you. But just imagine going to the movies and and seeing something like like you said, this car with the the in inverse uh, frame shots. It's um. It's a beautiful piece of storytelling without, you know, having to say, and now we're into my subconscious. You know, it, we know it's it's got a very dreamlike feel to it. And um, and sometimes those dream sequences work for, for directors and sometimes they don't. And they just end up confusing the audience. But I think having the way that the dream is interrupted by her screaming is yes. perfect because we've, we've all been at at some point in, you know, at the night, if you, if you, you have kids, so you probably have been yeah. woken up by screams many a time during the <laughs> night. You know, I don't have kids, but I, I, I know that, you know, a loud enough roll of thunder and uh, I'm looking up at bed going, what the hell was that? You know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's something that we can all relate to. And these characters, well, they they have elements that are relatable to kind of, everyday people because they're they're not extraordinary people and for someone like Kubrick who's gone on to make movies about extraordinary people like Spartacus or war heroes and and and, and tell their story um these are not extraordinary people these are like you said these are very lonely people who for just ran but seemingly random reasons uh, Gloria and Frankie probably never would have met had that you know this this incident not happened. He was on his way out. He was done. He was. I mean, the movie opens with these beautiful shots. I'm not sure exactly what train station. I want to say Penn Station, probably. And they were in stolen. <laughs> were they? Yeah, they gorilla were stolen. style. Yeah, gorilla style. There's so much of this film that's yeah. gorilla style. Yeah, and um, well, you can get away. You 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 can get away with a lot more gorilla style filmmaking back then than than you can now. Um. But um, you I I shocked that it's gorilla style because it it doesn't seem rushed like oh my god like any second to, we're gonna get kicked out of here, um, but yes um and you can see the if you like the point of view boxing shots the dream like se the dream sequence and then the whole finale in the mannequin warehouse you see the the genesis of. Kubrick's visuals style coming, coming, kind of coming to life here. 
Yeah. Well, and he also really does something cool with like the desperation aspect of it too, because when we go back to talking about these lonely heart people and these people on their way out, I mean, I feel this is probably relevant to into people's mindset today. These are paycheck to paycheck individuals. They don't have anything saved. All of his money is being held by this manager, boxing gym owner. All of her money is being held by her boss who has absolutely zero reason to give it to her because he doesn't want her to leave. So that's where the desperation plays in. And once they kind of have that little moment together in the morning after he's kind of comforted her after being assaulted, from that point on, you see a lot of interesting lighting that he does. He does a very soft fill light in the back, but a very hard key light on the people in frame. So it almost creates this idea that you are in two separate places at the same time. Everything is brought to the forefront. You see it in the boxing gym. You see it in the office scenes with Vincent. It's it's kind of off-putting at first. I mean, the first time we see the boxing manager in the gym when he's calling for his money, I thought it was a superimposed shot because the differentiation of the appearance of him versus the background is so startlingly different. And then as soon as he hangs up the phone when he's done talking to Davey, he walks back towards the boxing ring and like, oh, it's one shot. It was really impressive how he was creating this tension and this anxiety and this desperation through filmmaking techniques. So again, knowing that you have maybe amateur, slightly professional performers who may not be able to transpose the emotions you want in your script you're going to have to create some more tension with your filmmaking. And he does it brilliantly here. And when we talked about the visual stuff as well, there's that scene where he shoots through the goldfish bowl and everything is distorted. You don't see you fish, yeah. things like that that lurely in filmmaking. No, you get like the fisheye lens without, without it a fish being eye. a fisheye lens. <laughs> yeah, it's just the actual effect. I remember when you look... When you're looking through a goldfish bowl as a kid, you you look through it and then your eyes and face are all magnified on the other side. Uh, one of the other things that I really like is that the story of of what's her name? Gloria. <laughs> Gloria uh, talking about her sister. And it, it kind of it, it's it. It harkens to me just the kind of style of growing up in your older sister's shoes. He's, she talks about how what a wonderful ballet dancer she was. And you kind of get this sense of um, disappointment that she's she never she never got that sort of notoriety and she was never um, the favorite, so to speak. not the favorite, but um, it was clear that the father was much more banking on the older sister to the to the and the, the older sister had these had a rich suitor and. Everything seemed to be was like, OK, everything's going to be OK now. And um, it's not. And I think that Gloria is kind of um, she's I mean, just she's living in the shadow of of her sister. Um, yes. And I think that um, uh, Davy is kind of probably living in the shadow of either, you know, a boxer that he looked up to or, you know, a manager that was supposed to take him to the moon or, or, or some sort of promoter or something. We have, you know, people kind of, like you said, this desperation, people point in their life where they have to choose, like, what, what am I going to follow through with here? Um, but yeah, the visuals are just, um, 
I, I would think that some of it was probably improvised. And I, I'm sure he didn't like storyboard everything like he, he would do with later films. I think something maybe like the fishbowl was probably just like a happy accident on set. Or at least I'd like to think so. I could see him using the camera and being like, oh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, he was also a photographer before he became a filmmaker, shooting for different magazines and newspapers. I would almost think that maybe he was experimenting with things that he did as a still photographer, maybe shooting an apartment through a fishbowl. Or there's a scene where Davey picks up the telephone and the telephone is the key point of perspective right in the center of frame and then everything behind it takes a back seat. It does feel like someone who has played and experimented with photography and then lining those shots up to match the still photos they've taken – I don't have any evidence of that. That's just the way my brain processes it as opposed to storyboards because he probably wasn't storyboarding back then. But um, right. that's a really interesting thing. Yeah. I, and like, you, yeah, you could see the experience as a still photographer, just like um, he's probably someone that's familiar with boxing matches. He's like, oh, well, everyone does a wide shot when there's a boxing match. What if I put the, the camera in the ring? Like, right. what if the camera is like... Um, the boxer or the, the the opponent. I mean, those are just, like you said, those are what would probably only come from having like a creative background, like still photography where you kind of know. And I wonder if instead of storyboards, like he just had kind of like pictures. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he snuck into Penn station, took some still pictures and knew exactly like, well, I got to get in on the fly and illegally to film these scenes. So I need to know exactly where I want him to stand on the platform. And um, yeah. So, I mean, there's so much, and that's an, that another sign of a good director is that if you can have these theoretical conversations about where they, where something, where, like, where did this come from? That's just a sign of a, a, a good director. And um, it's almost like a midlife, it's like a midlife crisis movie. It does. Like, it really does feel know. that way, 100%. And it, it's a weird thing, too, when we talked about the desperation of the characters, there is almost a desperation in the filmmaking where maybe Kubrick is thinking, if this does not take off, I don't have a career. If I can't make this work. And you see it. And when the, we get to the third act, which you kind of already alluded to, we now have a situation where a person is dead because of a misunderstanding because Vincent doesn't want Gloria to leave. He gets his hoods to take out Davy. However, because Davy was distracted, another person shows up at the time where he was supposed to meet Gloria. And this person is taken out by the hoodlums, by the henchmen taking us to this third act where now we have gone from introductory noir story into like you said your kubrickian meat cute and this plan for a better life into what feels like almost sheer and utter chaos once we get into this last moment of this pursuit through the city to a save gloria from vincent dealing with the henchman which leads us into the mannequin factory now i like to think that If I was a filmmaker, I would have chosen that location first. I would have said Mannequin Factory is where the film needs to end. Now I'm going to reverse engineer this story to get to the beginning because it is all the cards are on the table. He threw all of his chips in that basket, being super ambitious with guerrilla style filmmaking, no budget, and bringing this terrifying environment of these disembodied and missing appendages mannequins 
in this brilliant black and white monochromatic color scheme that is so fear and anxiety inducing. Not only that, the way he plays with the shadows, the shadows of the mannequins against the wall, the shadows of Davy seeing only half his face, the other is completely engulfed in darkness. It is so panic inducing for such a low budget and short running film that when you say that you actually prefer this to the killing in some way, this is the way. This is what I feel. It's superior. Is the killing? He's playing a telling a story with a lot of different characters, a lot of different storylines. He doesn't have the time to be visualistically stunning. He has to get the story across. This is the opposite. The visualistic style is the story. It is telling you what you should feel as it's coming to an end. Right. And um, like you said, so we've got two characters here who both just decided, all right, I've had my last fight. I'm going to go get the, the purse. She's like, I'm going to quit my job and I'll get my last week's paycheck. And they're going to go off to like Idaho or something. <laughs> I think it was, yeah, somewhere out West. Yeah. And they're going there just because throughout the film, it, it had been built up about, um, with the uncle calling and saying like, we miss you. She come out and visit yeah. us and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's all, it, it's the simplicity. It, the story is simple. It just gets complicated at the end. Um, and I, and that's kind of why I, I, I love both these movies and um, they make for a great double feature for like early Kubrick work. But to me, something like the killing, the, the storytelling is so multi-layered mm-hmm. that um, I would say that it's probably the better film technically. Right. But for me, um, the way everything pans out and then the the be ending up in the mannequin warehouse like what i i was gripped in once we entered this mannequin warehouse and i would love i would like to think at some point that um there's a twilight zone episode about a man mannequins get to come to life for like one do you know what episode i'm talking about they yes. get to come to life for one week yes um and um one mannequin forgets that she's a mannequin i would love uh a kubrickian kind of like where the mannequins I don't know. I could see something. There's something about mannequins that have always are. I was just fascinated with them as a kid because they always, they're supposed to represent the human body, but they're not. They're very small, but they're, they're poses. And like you said, he uses that. And some of them are missing arms and legs or they don't have hands. There's something unnatural about that. Right. And there's something, I mean, it, it kind of makes the movie almost horrific that that fight that the two have in the mannequin factory um it seems very real it doesn't seem choreographed and that's what makes it dangerous because you almost feel like they have no idea who's going to swing the next swing or who's going to do the next blow and in that causes even more tension to the environment that you're in because it feels like that is a dangerous scene not only to shoot, but to watch because it does feel like you're watching a real fight. It does feel like you are watching a conflict between two people in the street that you just walked in on and you don't know how far it's going to go, you know? 
Right, and I think it's it's interesting though because we were talking about the the style of the boxing match that's the way that that's filmed as opposed to this fight in the mannequin warehouse. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's a lot more wide shots in the mannequin warehouse, and it does it looks sloppy. It, but I think that's on purpose. I think it's on purpose too, hundred percent. It, it's it's supposed to be like this one guy. Yeah, he, he's he's a boxer, but I mean he's fighting a gangster, and they're fa- there's mannequins all over the place. They're falling over into the mannequins. There's like piles of them. So, um, but I think it's all very purposeful. And then I I mean you were saying that this movie didn't have a happy ending. I was gonna. It was refreshing to me to see a a Kubrick movie that ends on a very happy note and um yeah so without going into spoiler territory we're not going to say you know who dies watch the film yourself we've led you to a very good spot where we can stop talking about who kills who or what happens but there is a very happy ending to this where at first you're not sure if the girl's going to show up he's waiting at the station he is got money he's free of all charges from the police department from anything they thought he might have done but the narration explains that, okay, well, my train's going to be here any minute. Of course she's not going to show up. Why would anything good happen to me? Nothing good ever happens to me. And then right before the closing credits roll, you see her put her suitcase down, run towards him. They get to go off together. And this isn't a, oh, it was all a fever dream kind of ending. This is a genuine ending. So the story goes, against Kubrick's wishes, United Artists required the film to be recut with a happy ending. United Artists paid $100,000 for the film if he provided a happy ending, and they also promised him $100,000 for his next project, which would be the killing. So he made the film independently. United Artists bought it from him, but only on the condition that he put in a happy ending. So Kubrick, never being known in future films to accommodate any request by a studio or by an actor, to me, this is like the character Davey in the movie. This is him having to say, I am going against my personal judgments and personal wishes of how I am as a filmmaker. I am going to shake hands with the devil because it's going to get me where I want to be that desperation that we talked about and the style of the filmmaking and the the desperation of the characters, it pretty much is playing out in real life. Kubrick has a choice to make. Try and release this film on my own or independently through a smaller studio knowing I get my ending or take the money from United Artists, change the ending, and be guaranteed to wow the world with whatever my next project is. See, Yeah, I was going to say, because the ending doesn't seem like, like you said... Any other Kubrick movie is not going to have this sort of ending. And um, not getting into spoilers, I the 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 climax, the third act, t- it takes a couple twists and turns that you probably weren't expecting. Uh, particularly with the way that there's one there's one part in particular with this climax that I won't get into for the because um, our hero Davy um, he does something that doesn't seem very heroic and i'll just leave it at that Mm -hmm. but it it all wraps up it all wraps it ends up wrapping up well enough but um it is um it is a happy ending and i sometimes you just there's certain characters that you kind of want to have a happy ending and there's other characters like the end of the shining i'm fine with like i'm glad (laughs) you know um the end of um 
eyes wide shut um is is not really happy it's not really sad it's somewhere in the middle it's kind of um, ambiguous you know yeah, are, are they going to repair their marriage or are they just going to live this facade for the rest of right. their lives you know yeah i'm just thinking about a couple endings in movies that were changed um and i can't um and true romance the ending was changed mm-hmm. and um tony scott insisted that um alabama and clarence would both live um, that was not the way Tarantino had it scripted. And if you've ever, have, have you seen The Mist? I'm guessing that yes. you've seen The Mist. Yes, <laughs> which 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 ending will, will, will tear your heart out? If you've ever read Stephen King's novella, The Mist actually ends on a very hopeful note. His story ends with a very hopeful note. And he uh, was actually... The- he was actually very complimentary saying that your guys's ending was better than mine. And I never say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's notorious for uh, uh, one of the biggest criticisms about King gets for his, his lack of good endings. <laughs> yeah. He can't stick the <laughs> ending. Um, but there's something like, I don't know. There's something kind of hopeful about, you know, because the movie opens with him at the train station and it ends with both of them at the train station. But what, what, what everything that happens in between, we're not given a lot. We don't spend a lot of time with these characters, but the chemistry they have is that they kind of just feel like two lost souls that were meant to be together and they just happened, you know, it, it, they finally, found each other and it's almost taken away from them. Um, so I kind of, I, I, I could see, I could see Kubrick not wanting the happy ending. I'm okay. I'm okay with it. I, because again, looking at the rest of his career, he was able to do whatever, you know, yeah. Like with movies, he was able to do whatever he wanted. And sometimes you got to do that. Um, there's countless stories of movies that, that they're like, we don't like this ending. Um, there's tons, I mean, and that's what I love about getting a piece of physical media is you check out some of the alternate endings. Mm-hmm. Um, um, get, get out Jordan Peele's first movie. The, the ending was drastically different. I would like to have seen what Q, do you know what Kubrick's original ending was? Just like, she doesn't, show she just up doesn't show up. Yeah. He doesn't, doesn't show, show up. up. You know, it's kind of like in the killing where spoiler alert, they don't get what they want. You know, some people die. But there, there is, it's all your opinion, your point of view of what a happy ending is, you know? If someone True. lives and doesn't die, is that the happy ending? If they don't get the reward or the money or the prize that they're after, that's fine as long as they live. But there are some people who think that, well, if they didn't get that reward or that prize, then life would be more lis- miserable to live for this character than if they were actually killed. It's a real interesting thing. I think it all depends on the viewer. And for this one, you know, like this does have a happy ending. And even if it didn't have the happy ending that is shown in the film, at least you know that Davy is going to have supposedly a better life. He's not going to just get stuck in New York as a nobody boxer. He might have a future elsewhere. So I'm not going to say it's a sad ending, but it's not... It's not a happy ending in the sense of there is a future with a partner that he's gone through all of these struggles with throughout the film. When the cops came, I took them back to free Gloria. The guy on the roof was picked up later. On the ride to the police station, Gloria didn't say very much. I guess she was trying to work out in her own mind why I ran and left her alone like that. I don't suppose she ever thought about how I might have felt listening to her talk to Rapallo that way. 
At the station house, they separated us for questioning. Five hours later, they chalked off Rapala with self-defense and had worked a confession from the Hoods and Albert's murder. You know, I was free. I know. For, for all we know, there could be a horrific train crash. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think just the fact that the two, I guess happiness, because they're like because they were both such lonely people that were um living in shadow like kind of living in shadows that they're out in the light at least together yeah at least they're out together um so to me yeah it was maybe not happy just a satisfying ending because i've watched certain movies where the ending you're just like why why would you do that and um like like the mist ending like i think it's a brilliant ending and um i prefer it to to the king's ending but again it's like who thought of this dark right. dark frank darabont that's who <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say it's just amazing to me that you know because kubrick is notorious for um what the shining had a final scene that was i think it was shown the first week and then it was yanked from theaters and for those of you who don't know there's this there was an ending scene of the shining with um Tilly duvall and uh danny in the hospital um and they're met by you know the, the um the ho- the hotel uh, operator comes and gives Danny I think the the tennis ball from mm-hmm. his father, um, but for whatever reason, you know Kubrick didn't like that, and I I love the way The Shining ends that that last scene. So I guess my only thing is that while I do I do like the ending, I think it's satisfying. It would be interesting to to see kind of, and I guess it's easy enough to just kind of you could cut the movie, yeah. Like you could do your own cut and just cut the last thirty seconds where she does show up and just like cut to a train. He, uh, I think that was a compromise that he was more than willing to to live with. I, I would have done. I would have taken the money. I would have done that too. Like if if I had the ideas in my head that Kubrick probably had in his head, I would have taken the money too and not looked back because we're talking about a film right now that not a lot of people have seen or even heard about. A lot of people think that Kubrick's career started probably with either Spartacus maybe Lolita or further. And that's what we're talking about this one. Like the, the killing and killer's kiss. Again, we talked about double features last time. We'd put these two together a hundred percent. I agree. Criterion came out with that set that pretty much allowed you to do that. And yeah. that's a set I have. Now there yep, was recently a 4k release of both this and the killing through Kino Lorber. I haven't purchased either of those because I am so proud of my criterion set but yeah. I am curious. I'm always curious of what new physical media and new restorations bring to the table. So maybe eventually I will get those. But to the listeners of both my show and Cult Film Companion, this is the prime example of the genesis of brilliance and the origin of an iconoclastic filmmaker who essentially made a cult film. This, to me, is a cult Worthy classic. It is a cult film and it paves the way for everything that you've seen from Kubrick since then. This is where he was really playing with style and lighting and subject matter. So if you're going to start your Kubrick experience or if you're going to go back and revisit films, go back to the beginning, man. That's what I say. Oh, yeah. Um, I, and just thinking about this this movie, I, I didn't know that this movie was dubbed. <laughs> I did, right. I did, that was news to me. Um, and speak, uh, cause I'm thinking back that like, if you go back to early Cronenberg, like his first movies, uh, stereo and, um, what's the other one? He just, he didn't remake it, but it was, um, crime to the future or something. Okay. Those movies, 
those movies were made with equipment that he couldn't record sound, so he had to overdub everything. And um, I mean, someone like Kubrick, uh, it's and I, I think that Criterion probably had a lot to do with just really kind of um, smoothing out some of the edges as far as the restoration goes. Because to me, it's 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 one of those it's just a flawless looking movie. And if you dig, if you really dig black and white black and white cinema, I mean, this is this. This and The Killing are prime examples of brilliant black and white cinema. Um, yeah, just lots of good stuff here. And um, you could see the influences, like we, we mentioned a whole bunch. But if you just, I, I'm sure the influences are, are, are infinite when it comes to um, something like this. When a director sees something like this from Kubrick and then goes on and, and borrows the style. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to borrow here. Um, so... A hundred percent, man. What do you think of the alternate title for this? Was Kill Me or Kiss Me? Yeah, Kiss Me or Kill Me or something like that. I I think it's fine. I mean, Killer's Kiss really works for the idea that it sounds very noir-ish. It sounds like something you'd see on a Pulp Fiction novel. So I would say the title is more of bait for an audience who sees the poster to go see the film because yeah. it really doesn't have a lot to do with the story. And that's fine. Again, we're talking about compromises. We're talking about marketing. So who, who really knows, but I really appreciated this conversation and you and I are both champions of this film. We're getting the word out there for people to go back and get it. And it just kind of fits in both of yours and my shows bloodline where you're exposing cult worthy right. films. So Speaking of shows, man, uh, you keep putting out just amazing material with all these great cult films and B-movies. What have you got coming up in the next little bit? We're kind of creeping into October now, so what you got coming for us? Yeah, so, well, before I get into all that, I just wanted – I it was Penn Station. I was right. Oh, you're so, right. <laughs> this, that's, it's the original Penn Station. So, um, And there are shots on Times Square, which you can see when she, when he's waiting outside. So, yeah. Um, but um coming up in october well uh, today as as of recording this is the 24th i will be dropping um i come in peace or dark angel as it's known the dolph lundgren movie we have a suspiria double feature where nice. we're talking about the original 1977 and the 2018 um one i've got non-horror related um michelle's high school reunion i got that in the bag and I've got um, someone that did a book, like one the author of the Toby Hooper biography, or one of the Toby Hope, Hooper biographies, should be coming on the show to discuss Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which uh, I, I genuinely like that movie. That is my and, favorite of pretty much any horror sequel. I did an episode a long time ago where I said that Psycho 2 and Texas Chainsaw 2 were probably the most underrated horror sequels of all time and definitely need to be championed and rediscovered yeah and plus we got some real old stuff coming in with the original freaks from the 30s um carnival of souls that's a good one man it's and on my list too carnival of souls is brilliant um so yeah but it, it's, yeah if people haven't checked out carnival of souls and then from the 70s uh i don't know how else to pronounce it other than it's a bunch of <laughs> Bunch of esters, and if you haven't seen it, it's about uh, uh, a snake man. Yeah, it's which about is... a snake man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, pretty much. So awesome. lots of good stuff 
uh, coming your way on our show. And um, thank you again for inviting me on here. Yeah, it's man. And we got future collaborations are. between the two of us where right. we're going to talk about a, a really great film that we've been planning for a long time and, and I'm sure more to come. So you can find his show, The Cult Film Companion, pretty much anywhere where podcasts can be streamed. But you can also find him on my website, thecultworthy.com. I have links to all of my favorite cult-worthy podcasting partners, which Chris is definitely on that list. And yeah, follow us both on Twitter and Instagram. You've got a lot of stuff going on Instagram. And you can just see what we are watching and what we are talking about. And if, if there's any other cult film podcast that I can suggest other than mine, it is Mr. Chris's cult film companion, 100%. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, just trying to fill in the gaps of my own cinematic history and spreading the word that um, you know, the, the, the history of, of, of great cinema is full of cult movies from every, gener- uh, every time period and every genre. Uh, a pleasure to be here, Antonio. Always love talking, with, uh, talking cult movies with you and stuff. Awesome, man. Well, you have a great day, and everyone, we will see you next week.